0: I would like to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. David Kippen. David Kippen is the National Endowment for the Arts Director of Literature, National Reading Initiatives, and Program Director of The Big Read. Mr. Kippen has been a book critic and essayist for the San Francisco Chronicle and National Public Radio's Day to Day, and is film critic for XM Radio's Bob Edwards Show. He also has published The Schreiber Theory, a radical rewrite of American film history, and a new translation, and the, uh, David Kippen is a very smart man, of Cervantes' The Dialogue of the Dogs. We're always very happy to welcome Mr. David Kippen to Sokolo. Thank you.
1: Thank you all, and thank you, Gregory, for coming tonight. Um, we've got a really exciting and action-packed hour. As you can see, it's a large panel. Um, but uh, it would have to be a large panel and a much larger one than this to fit in all the people, all the Angelinos, especially, to whom uh, the arch-bard of this city, John Fonte, means so much. Uh, I wish I could say that if he were alive today, there's no place he would rather be, but uh, as some of you may know, the Dodgers are playing the Padres down the coast tonight, so m- maybe that isn't quite the case. Um, anyway, I'm thrilled to be here and I want to introduce uh, the panel before we go one step farther. Um, To my immediate left is Frances Anderton. Uh, She creates the DNA, that is Design and Architecture, program on the third Tuesday of every month and 24 hours a day in cyberspace for uh, KCRW. Um, She's also the producer of um, Which Way LA and um, uh, To the Point on, on KCRW with Warren Olney. Um, and also a lover of John Fonte, though at though great pains to point out, by no means an expert, and she has that in common with myself. We are here as lovers of Fonte. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, no less a lover of Fonte, but certainly an expert, is Stephen Cooper, Mr. Fonte's biographer, in his wonderful uh, book uh, Full of Life, which I see under some arms and on some armrests out there even tonight. Uh, he's also a professor of literature at uh, Cal State Long Beach and uh, an erstwhile winner of the National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship for Literature, with which I had nothing to do. Um, to his left, we have Richard Shave, who is the proprietor of Esoteric, Bus Adventures into the Secret Heart of Los Angeles. I encourage anyone within the sound of my voice to uh, Google Same, that is E-S-O-T-O-U-R-I-C, Esoteric, with a tour in the middle, um, a, a true uh, mainstay and patron of his native Los Angeles. By the way, we have a panel here composed exclusively of Los Angeles natives. Um, I'm assuming some of those clapping might be able to make the same claim. And to Richard's left, we have Victoria Fonte Cohen, the uh, managing partner of the Fonte Literary Trust. And to her left, her brother, Jim Fonte, the silent partner of the uh, Fonte Literary Trust. And I have but one more introduction to make before we uh, delve into our tribute uh, to the uh, absent man of honor tonight. And that is uh, a woman named Jeannie Gerard, who is a manuscripts librarian at uh, UCLA, who has a bit of news to make. I wonder if she might be prevailed upon uh, to join us on stage for just a moment. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, Jeannie Girard from the absolutely tremendous Special Collections Library at UCLA. Jeannie, fill us in.
2: Well, it is um, my honor to announce, on behalf of the Charles E. Young Research Library, Department of Special Collections, that we have acquired the literary papers of John Fonte. Um, (laughs) We're happy about it too. Um, The papers, um, Stephen may tell you a lot more about this, but the papers (laughs) consist basically of um, original, heavily annotated manuscripts and drafts of books, short stories and screenplays, a lot of personal correspondence, business records, periodicals with articles by and about John Fonte, uh, proofs of his books, um, several personal items, and Stephen Cooper's manuscript of his published biography. So researchers will soon be able to search the UCLA Library's catalog and our online finding aids and discover relationships between Fonte and other writers whose papers are in our collections, such as Raymond Chandler, Jim Thompson, Jim Tully, Horace McCoy, Nathaniel West, and and others. Um, There are also the papers of others who shared common interests and concerns as Fonte's immigration, racism, poverty, the underclass, ethnic identity, social injustice. So, for instance, we have um, UCLA has the largest extant collection of Carrie McWilliams, who was Fonte's very close friend for 30 years. Performing Arts Special Collections has a collection of Irving Lerner, Lerner, who I just discovered. um, That collection includes some of Fonte's uh, screenplays. So I'd like to thank the Fonte family, Vicki and Mike, Jim and Jennifer, Dan, for um, partnering with former uh, head of special collections, Victoria Steele, and Gary Strong, university librarian, on this wonderful acquisition. And although recognition for his writing may have been late in coming, John Fonte's papers will now, and hereforward foster scholarship about this great writer, and the perspective and insight about Los Angeles that he revealed through his writings. Thank you.
1: Thank you. <laughs> Jeannie Girard. Before we go one step farther, I think it's high time we heard a little Fonte. Um, I think I'm going to uh, arrogate to myself the uh, moderator's prerogative of reading a little bit, and then I'm going to throw to Francis for perhaps uh, the most justly famous paragraph that uh, John Fonte ever wrote. But this is from um, not the first, uh, but in fact a a common mistake which I've uh, occasionally been guilty of. Not the first, but the third page of Ask the Dust. (sighs) then a great deal of time passed as i stood in front of a pipe shop and looked and the whole world faded except that window and i stood and smoked them all and saw myself a great author with that natty italian briar and a cane stepping out of a big black car and she was there too proud as hell of me the lady in the silver fox fur we registered and then we had cocktails and then we danced a while and then we had another cocktail and i recited some lines from sanskrit and the world was so wonderful, because every two minutes, some gorgeous one gazed at me, the great author. And nothing would do but I had to autograph her menu. And the Silver Fox girl was very jealous.
3: <laughs> Los Angeles, give me some of you. Los Angeles, come to me the way I came to you. My feet over your streets, you pretty town. I loved you so much. You sad flower in the sand, you pretty town.
1: Mm. I wonder if we, thank you. I wonder if we could now turn to Stephen for just a bit and and hear a little about where John Fonte was in his life, both at the time that he was living this and then a few years on when he was writing it.
4: Sure. First, though, I have to say that this is a little bit like a dream to me. (laughs) Because when I first read Ask the Dust many, many years ago, um, I knew nobody who had ever heard of <laughs> it or John Fonte. And now to have so many of you show up tonight to help celebrate his 100th uh, centen- centenary of his birth uh,
1: really means a great deal. Well, without me. you here, I dare say we wouldn't have half this crowd, uh, so the thanks belong in part yeah. to you. you. Um, he wrote the novel in a
4: rush, late 1938, uh, November perhaps he started And by the beginning of May, he had shipped the manuscript off to his publisher. Um, At that time, he was a man of 29 years old, living in Los Angeles. Uh, He had already worked in Hollywood studios for several years, published a novel, uh, a fair number of short stories in the leading periodicals of uh, of the day. And so the time he was writing the novel, he had past uh, the period in his life of struggling that the novel is about. Uh, It's a mistake I think that some people uh, make and they can be understood for making it uh, thinking that he wrote the novel while living the life that he's writing about. No. Uh, He was married at the time of writing the book and already quite a professional and professionalized writer. Mm -hmm. The time he was writing about, however, uh, the early years of his Uh, arriving in Los Angeles from Colorado uh, bear striking similarities to the the extremes of the novel Uh, there were months and uh, perhaps as much as a year in the earliest thirties when Fonte was really living hand to mouth uh, uh, going to the Grand Central Market and subsisting on oranges and and just giving us all in order to write much like Arturo does in the novel uh, so I like to to bear in mind the discrepancy between the the John Fonte who wrote the book, the John Fonte who lived the book in in some respects,
1: and uh, how the two come together. I wonder if we could ask um, maybe Jim, is it is it reckless of us to assume? that John Fonté is Arturo Bandini I mean when you hear that voice does that sound like your dad to you or is it a sort of stylized version of your dad you know i i think
5: it's one and the same person yeah. i mean it's it's a little bit stylized but uh, uh he was every bit as fiery as maybe more so than Arturo Bandini <laughs> in person yeah
1: um, now you are the youngest of John Fonte's children, is that right? That's right. Yeah. Um was he was he was he quite as fiery by the time uh, he got around to parenting you? Well he could be. Um I
5: remember in um, it was his forty-ninth birthday. We're all sitting there at the at the table in the house in Malibu, and uh he announced that he was a diabetic. Hmm. And um it didn't at the time seem like it meant that much to me or to anybody. Uh, you know, we were concerned about it, but it changed his lifestyle. Um, he he almost never drank after that. Really, um, didn't eat sweets, lost weight, um, didn't go out. So, uh, no, he he was he wasn't a wild man uh, that I remember at all, or that my
1: sister would remember. Hmm. N- n- yeah, is that about right? No. I should uh, say a little bit about how this should work. I, I, I would like this, if at all possible, to be a conversation without um, alarming the engineer unduly. So if anyone feels <laughs> the need to jump in, by all means do, within the bounds of, of, of reason. Um, I wonder, um, if Francis, um, I just wanted, uh, you know, uh, if you would share with us a little bit of your experience coming to Los Angeles and, and having Fonte, or at least Ask the Dust, as a kind of unofficial uh, introduction to the place. Do you remember what that was like?
3: Yes, and just the fact that you've talked about me coming to LA underscores the fact that I'm not a native mm-hmm. of LA. You said we were all natives. Oh, I guess. But you She was late. I think I recognized like that, I I I recognize
1: like if that you accent. Enough An which way LA, we it's grandfather true. you <laughs> in. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Thank you. And it's I've always said to anyone that knows me that LA is absolutely my spiritual home. Mm-hmm. So I feel like a native. Um, and probably, I don't know, Fante with his marvellous metaphor of the desert under the city would see LA as being something or and Angelinos that sort of spring from, from nothing, you know. So um so I probably, in his view, I might earn Angelino status. But um no, I, f- I first came to L.A. in 1987 to edit a special issue on L.A. for an architecture magazine I was working for. And I really knew very little about L.A., in fact, almost nothing except what I saw on TV, the, you know, the Hollywood imagery and, and freeways. And I was flying to L.A. and I, I basically read three books and... Um, one of them was Brett Easton Ellis. I'm not sure if he stands <laughs> the test of time, but the other two, the other two, I think, have stood the test of time, which is Raina Bannam's Los Angeles, The Architecture Four Ecologies, and mm-hmm. Ask the Dust. And I can't remember why I picked Ask the Dust. That I don't remember, but I do remember that it had a profound effect on me in as much as anyone that knows England, well, one knows there's a certain way of English writers, at least up until fifty years ago, sort of expressing themselves, which was, a, you know, probably rather more sort of refined language, uh, keeping stuff back, you know. And then, also, of course, I come from a very wet country, and there was something about this combination of the vis, the visual quality of his writing, the visual expression of these emotions, coupled with this depiction of this, of this place that was. Arid and an aridity that I had not experienced in England. I and so so that quality that he somehow captured and the this 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 juxtaposition of the of the dark and the light and the pretty and the sad and the tortured and the lady in the silver fox fur, all of that I've always found fascinating about LA and he articulated it so but but this combination of this. This this amazing inner life that he conjures, like you in the paragraph you read, yeah. is he's in his in his in his fa- f- his interior universe, and then just nailing in in this extremely palpable way the physical quality of LA. I guess all of those things made a deep impression on me. Um, we should bear in mind,
1: I guess, that if John Fonte were somehow to join us on stage today, he he would not be any more entitled than yourself to call himself a native of Los Angeles. And I, I wonder if Stephen, you might just talk for a bit about how he came to become an Angelino. It's 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 always it struck me um, oddly that so many of people of the people we think of as you know canonical Los Angeles writers. Uh, Fonte, but also Kerry McWilliams and uh, Dalton Trumbo, another favorite of mine, are in fact from Colorado. Yeah. Um, was there some sort yeah, of
3: what is the Colorado connection?
1: Yeah, th- that, that's my question for you. Was Stephen. Kerry McWilliams from Colorado? Sure, he was indeed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh,
4: interesting juxtaposition. Uh, this friendship, uh, Kerry McWilliams and. Uh, John Fonte
1: for those of you who don't know Carrie McWilliams longtime editor of the nation and um, uh, author of Cal- Southern California an island on the land and North from Mexico and other great great nonfiction works about California uh,
4: McWilliams has been called the most important nonfiction writer on things California yeah. um, but John Fonte was the son of a poor Italian American uh, family his father was an immigrant from Italy his mother was born in Chicago, but was thoroughly Italian-American. And uh, th- the family was often you know, really, really poor. Mm-hmm. Um, Kerry McWilliams comes from a, a very privileged background. His father was a state senator, I believe, or yeah. a legisl- an elected legislator of some sort in uh, Colorado, and a, a wealthy rancher. Um, But they both made their way to Los Angeles when their respective families went bust. Mm. Um, John Fonte's father notoriously left the family for another woman. And John took it upon himself to hitchhike, (laughs) ride the rails, make his way uh, as well as he could from uh, Boulder to Wilmington, of all places. He settled in Wilmington where he had a couple of uncles um, and went to work there. Uh, at various menial, often really hard manual labor to support uh, his mother and his brother, one brother and a sister who all followed him out here. The, the You know, the fact that he is now regarded as the prototypical Los Angeles writer <laughs> is uh, something I think we want to pay attention to. But he became that uh, in pretty short order, um, he spent a year, two years perhaps, in Wilmington and Long Beach before moving to Los Angeles. And within months, before a year had passed, he really lived at the sort of social, cultural um, center of Los Angeles, thanks to his friendship with Kerry McWilliams, mm-hmm. who was as well-placed um, as a person could be. He was a practicing attorney and a writer and a, a political activist. Uh, Another friend, Ross Wills, was the story editor at MGM. So there are the movies with McWilliams. It was uh, uh, politics. And uh, um, uh, Hannah, I'm blanking on his first name. Bill? No. Yeah, Bill, Townsend, Hannah. Yeah. Yes, yes. The editor of Touring Topics, which was uh, to become Westways magazine uh... and uh... hannah's interests were all things california um, and so in short order fonte made himself over into if not a native then certainly as californian as as he could be in los angelino as could be
5: you know if i may say so richard has a great piece by ross wills that he, oh, he brought to read and and to yes you and you
3: had, gave you it, it to me and prices? i was just looking for
5: wherever that is Well, you fish it out sit.
1: let's let, let's set this up a <laughs> <Yes>. little bit <laughs> richard um... I wonder if you talk a little bit about what Fonte means to those of us who love Los Angeles, um, or perhaps with an assist at first from Ross Wells. uh, Your call.
6: uh, Well, let me just pick up on what Francis came out to Los Angeles in 87 with with Bannum in one hand and Fonte in the other. And and Raynor Bannum and John Fonte is really how I like to start, too, because um, my wife and I started looking at downtown. Uh, very seriously, about five years ago, and we wanted to, Rainer Banham in his book Arch- *Los Angeles and Architecture for Ecologies*. Notoriously, writes one paragraph about downtown Los Angeles. It's it's a footnote because downtown <laughs> doesn't exist. And and Rainer, God bless him, who I studied with, whom I studied with at Santa Cruz, was wrong. And when I started to try and understand five or six years ago back what, what downtown was, I started with Fonte. Arturo Bandini wandering through Bunker Hill and Pershing Square, which is this neighborhood that that the city destroyed back in in the 50s and and this this whole world that existed doesn't exist anymore. We're trying to understand the history of downtown John Fon, Arturo Bandini and Rainer Bannum sort of missing each other Bannum thinking that there's nothing downtown and Arturo Bandini as the, the hero of, of, of lost Bunker Hill.
1: You and Francis, uh, you know, with with Bannum under one arm and and Fontaine under the other, it's like the the last scene of Inherit the Wind, you know, where where he's got a copy of the Origin of Species (laughs) in one hand and the Bible in the other. Exactly. It's
3: interesting, actually, (laughs) because Raina Bannum's depiction of L.A. is is different. They both love L.A. in such different ways. And and uh, Fante finds its, you know, its dark heart as well as the uh, ecstasy, I suppose. Yeah. And Raina Banham just takes a sheer unadulterated sort of love of pop culture joy mm. in LA, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. I
1: yeah. wonder if any of you have any recollection, first or second hand, of John Fante's reaction to the obliteration of the Bunker Hill that we now know really only through his work. I mean. He was, I assume, privy to that whole. Urban I just remember there was a, it was a radio in, uh, interview,
5: um, probably in the '70s, and mm-hmm. they were asking him about that. And he, he had been back to downtown Los Angeles, and he just said, "I, I don't recognize it. I don't." He just, he'd lost his uh, connection with it. Mm. Was that your personal...
7: And I'd like to add that um, when we were children, our father took us to downtown L.A. to to ride on the red car Oh, because he said, you know, you need to ride the red car because it's going to be... They were ripping it out. So he wanted to make sure we had that experience.
1: (sighs) Angel's Flight, too, didn't you say? He took me
5: to Angel's Flight, yeah. True. And I didn't... uh, I was so young I didn't even know of As the dust.
7: No neither n- neither of and us did. We didn't
5: He's he we went up and down Angel's Flight and he pointed to where he lived and mm-hmm. he took me to the uh, Grand Central Market and bought some fruit. And, yeah. you know, you years mean he could actually eat oranges go, after <laughs> living off
6: nothing but for all those <laughs> yeah. 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 Also I I sent you Vicky that article that was that he wrote in 1955. You, you'd already moved to Malibu, but in 1955, the Bunker Hill Redevelopment Plan had been published and the, the CRA had started to begin to, uh, through eminent domain, seize all 137 acres of Bunker Hill. And he wrote this really wonderful piece about bunker, the Bunker Hill he knew hmm. and the Bunker Hill that, that would be lost.
8: So oh, that's it, it, right. Er, so early
6: I mean fifty five was pretty early to be kept to this, I think. So I think he was always when did they actually rip out Bunker Hill? Do you remember? Uh in, in, in nineteen uh fifty-nine they got the last clearances. The sub, the state Supreme Court gave them the okay and they started ripping it out in fifty-nine. By sixty-four, I think it was all raised.
1: Mm-hmm. So Richard, if we wanted to go out uh tonight or tomorrow and you know look for his haunts and and the the
6: King Edward Saloon tomorrow night (laughs) by all means mention this the King
1: Edward Saloon at
6: 5th and Los Angeles Street is the last Skid Row Bar it's still there it's uh, page 75 of of your edition Francis I believe Arturo takes his royalty check (laughs) Mm -hmm. and squanders it on the B-girls at the King Edward and so we're all going to go down there tomorrow night and everybody's (laughs) invited everyone's invited (laughs) Uh, there are a couple places left of John Fonte's Bunker Hill. Tell us. There's, uh, there's a wonderful uh, stone retaining wall on Olive Street at 4th. Um, there's the Goodwill, where Arturo buys a suit, and I think it's Dreams from Bunker Hill. The Goodwill is still there mm-hmm. at 2nd and Broadway. Mm-hmm. And of course, Grand Central Market is still there. Angel's Flight will reopen. They're, they're, they're May still... it be soon. Yes, we'll wh- reopen
3: what there aren't he are these marvelous well these buildings that don't exist anymore that he describes so well they they they're set on the hill in reverse yeah. so you enter at the you know, the 10th floor is in the basement right. yeah i love yeah. that and is, is that
1: is that historic i mean it, you can yeah, go yeah, that's for, that for that real mm-hmm. oh yeah. good lord well now uh, it's it's altogether too tempting and delicious to sort of fetishize you know the man's life and haunts at the expense of the prose. I want to turn to Stephen uh, for a couple of minutes here just to, to talk about how you would characterize the prose. I mean, what are the what are the tells and the giveaways that uh, you know you can always spot uh, in a page of Fonte? What, what what makes his prose his and no one else's? Yeah,
4: um, the phrase I think that that sums it up. Uh, most simply is to say that it's deceptively simple. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fonte's prose is as accessible as any American writing that I know of. Uh, You don't have to have a Ph.D. to read it, uh, much less to enjoy it. It's there and it comes across as uh, directly as as any American prose that I know. But try to parse his sentences. Try to take them apart and it becomes clear very quickly that... uh, there's a, a poetic um, uh, vision at work that disregards sort of conventional rules of, of grammar and syntax in order to, to, to penetrate the, the surface of the narrative and evoke the, the interior states of his, of his protagonist, uh, Arturo Bandini. He learned this um, by studying very, very, very rigorously the works of of all things, a Norwegian 19th century novelist, Knut Hampson, um, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1920. Um, there's a, a marvelous series of letters from his agent in 1936, Elizabeth Noel, writing to him from New York. This is Fonte's agent. Yeah. Fonte's agent, urging him to read and to study Hampson's masterpiece, Hunger. Hunger was published in 1880-something, and it traces a young man in Christianistad, which is now Oslo, Mm. who wants only to write a great novel, who is starving to death because he doesn't have work, and who's obsessively uh, following a a beautiful woman through the city. This is a thread that if you read Astodes carefully, you'll easily identify as part of the the narrative of Ask the Dust. But the prose style owes as much to Hanson's prose style mm. as to anything, any other writer. Uh, Sherwood Anderson was a um, uh, an influence as well. Um, but he, he, he can go from just the coarsest and, and uh, some might even be repulsed by some of the sort of direct uh, uh, ways that he comes at his subjects. From that... So just vaulting, exalted, poetic flights. Uh, you've already read uh, one, Francis has. Yeah, and,
1: and I'm tempted to do it again just because yeah. I want to... I mean, there's something so, so ragged and spontaneous about it. You know, Los Angeles, give me some of you. Los Angeles, come to me the way I came to you. My feet over your streets, you pretty town. I loved you so much. You sad flower in the sand, you pretty town. I mean, there must have been somebody at... Who's the publisher for this book? The original publisher, yeah, Stackpole Sons. Stackpole Sons. You know who said, uh, you know, uh, you know, query, Mister Fonte. Don't you say you pretty town twice here? Mm-hmm. Well, he does, mm-hmm. and and it works. And I'm not sure why. Was he a, was he a, a notorious rewriter? You've seen these manuscripts that were just donated to UCLA. Mm-hmm. Did this burn out of him in one great outpouring, or did he go back and really worry in, it to death? In
4: fact, the one manuscript that I have not seen is the manuscript for Ask the Dust, which is. A mystery. We know not where it is. When was it last seen? No one
5: knows. Nobody knows. That's even in question. That's a mystery. It died with him and my mom. We don't know. We don't
7: Mm -hmm. know. I've made
5: great efforts to
4: locate it and if anybody can assist, uh, we would all appreciate it. Be great. But to answer your question, (laughs) to answer your question, Ask the Dust by his account and by his wife Joyce's account poured out of him with little in the way of need for revision. Other stories, other novels, not so. Uh, And the manuscripts attest to the hard work he did, writing and and rewriting, in order to get things right. But Ask the Dust, as he characterized it, uh, was a a boil that needed to be bled. (laughs) <laughs> well, that was that
1: amazing year, too. End of 38, beginning of 39. I mean, yes. if you'd driven down the streets of Los Angeles in the middle of the night, you'd have heard typewriters clacking at the Fonte place where he was working on Ask the Dust, mm-hmm. the Chandler house where, mm-hmm. where he was writing The Big Sleep, mm-hmm. and Nathaniel, Nathaniel West's West. where he was working on Day of the Locust. Yeah. I mean, wow. it, it, it boggles the imagination.
3: Were they friends, those three? Uh,
4: Fonte met... Nathaniel West. I don't know that he. And I think, Chandler I think they
6: were. all. Were. Well, Chandler was at Stanley Roses too.
4: They they great bookstore. Were. They were Hollywood. all um, habitués of Stanley, Stanley Rose, Rose, Rose bookshops. Uh, I'm not sure that they were ever there at the same
1: time, but let's. I'd like to think they were. And John, were not you saying that he was uh, uh, pressed into service, service sometimes when uh, William Faulkner couldn't quite uh, make his deadlines? <laughs>
5: uh, that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh,
1: what what he told me about that
5: was that uh, Faulkner, um, you know, he was a name, but he he drank all the time, and so Dad was a ghost writer for
1: Faulkner in Hollywood, um, ghosting his screenplays, not his fiction. Yes, right, yeah. right.
5: I don't know how often that occurred, but it, it
4: happened. I mean, you probably would know how. That I know less about than I know about their drinking together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> a hellacious story that uh, Al Bezerides tells of um, drinking with Fonte and Faulkner uh, and just staggering down <laughs> Hollywood Boulevard singing dirty limericks. And, uh, <laughs> you care to favor us with any? or <laughs> uh, the, so, there, yeah. there is a reception it's a, it's in the a, courtyard afterward. Read my biography. I can't quote that passage by memory, but uh, it's in there. Um...
1: And and then after Ask the Dust, um, as his as his career began, at least from a, a publishing standpoint, a fiction standpoint, to fall into a, a, a kind of eclipse, what 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 was going on then? What you know? What characterized those years?
4: Um, Ask the Dust came out in '39, and Dago Red, a collection of short stories, came out in '40. And he was poised to become the next John Steinbeck. That's what Viking, his then publisher, uh, had designs uh, on for him. It never happened for some pretty interesting reasons. The uh, publisher of Ask the Dust, which was not Viking but Stackpole, was sued by the uh, representatives of Adolf Hitler, of all people, for having published an unauthorized version of Mein Kampf. Was this the one
1: translated by Alan Cranston, or did I hallucinate that? <laughs> I, I, I never heard that. David. I don't know. Not admiringly, by any means, but uh, there is such a story. Anyway, go on.
4: But Hitler's people won this lawsuit.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
4: and Stackpole almost went out of business. Uh, and what might have gone into uh, publicity and advertising for that uh, year's authors, including John Fonte, kind of was drained away. The war started, the Second World War. Everybody was a little bit distracted uh, for good reason. And uh, Fonte went to work for the uh, Office of War Information up in San Francisco and then entered a 10-year period of uh, writing pretty bad movies, uh, pretty bad scripts that never even were made into movies, Golfing an awful lot and drinking perhaps a bit too much and didn't write much for a good ten years And so his his uh, star sort of failed to to really launch Um, And thereafter he he uh, he had some good luck In fact uh, the next novel he published full of life was a a bestseller was serialized in uh, uh, I forget which slick um, Reader's Digest was it? I'm not sure yeah and I uh, was made into a, a popular movie. Uh, his Hollywood career uh, continued, and there were good years, and years that perhaps weren't so good. But it's true that his his publishing life went into uh, uh, an eclipse through the 50s and, and the 60s.
6: G- Jim, I, re- I remember you told me once when your dad was started, uh, your dad called you all in, into, the, into a room. I think there's a pool table there. And he made the announcement about having to write a television scenario. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There was uh, uh,
5: Gene Kelly, who was a m- famous movie star in the 50s. Uh, he had a uh, TV series called Going My Way. And uh, Dad hadn't made a nickel in I don't know how long. And uh, writing television in those days for for... It was just not not a good thing. I mean, he he felt very demeaned about the whole thing. So yeah, he, he got us all together yeah. and just announced that he was doing a Going My Way and he had tears <laughs> running down his face. <laughs>
7: <and> <laughs> I remember <laughs> this well.
5: well we we felt bad. There. We <laughs> felt bad. But it was, it was $10,000. So he said, it's $10,000 and we need the money. So, mm-hmm.
1: Richard, you were making an interesting point earlier to the effect that his his final book you know, bore the earmarks of someone who'd put in all those labors as a screenwriter and not necessarily for the worse.
6: Oh, right. I, I often say that, I think, uh, Dreams from Bunker Hill, which he dictated to to your <laughs> to mom, yeah, just before he died, that would, that would, that that's, that's very much, um, th- there's, there's a narrative structure there. It's written by a guy that's been writing three-act screenplays for you know, falling out of bed and writing them, yeah, you know, yeah. just, it's a very different than his first Bunker Hill novel, Last of the Dust, real, real pace.
5: Very unedited, uh, as well. I mean, he, he dictated that to my mom. He was blind and dictated it and she just copied down on a yellow stencil pad and then, and it was over. You know, that but was
1: it. But is someone fascinated like I am with writings therapeutic properties for the writer himself. I mean, I wonder if you could say a little bit about the state he was in before.
5: Oh, uh, you know, he he, uh, he had advanced diabetes and um, eventually he lost his sight and both his legs and somewhere in the middle of that debacle uh, he lost his mind. So we He was still living at home, and, uh, you know, you could go see him and stuff, but he really didn't know what was going on. And uh, he hadn't written in, I don't know, two, three years at least. And then one day my mom calls me, and she said, you won't believe what's happening. He's writing a book. I said, how can he write a book? (laughs) And he doesn't even know who he is. Oh, you'll see. (laughs) So I go out there, and, and we had a patio in the back, and uh, he was sitting where he liked to sit. This is the Malibu house. At the Malibu house. Mm. He'd, he'd sit out there and listen to Dodger games and stuff mm. on the radio because he couldn't see. But he was uh, he was dictating this book. And he was alert. He was sitting up straight. And, and my mom's like, happy. can you believe mm. it? I said, yeah, I believe it. You know, And it didn't take very long. I, I don't remember exactly, but it was got to be the quickest book he wrote. <laughs> maybe two months and there was this stack of
4: these yellow things and she sent it off and there you go <laughs> to, to appreciate the, you know the feat, close your eyes and try to write a paragraph mm. yeah and then you know, multiply that by several hundred keeping a whole novel in your mind That's yeah amazing. 200
5: pages yeah. and and it all flowed
1: and uh, you know. Well, maybe the next best thing before we open it up to questions would be to close our eyes and listen to some of Fonte's prose read by Victoria, who has uh, just a, a couple of pages with her I think she wanted to, to I do. impart.
4: I
7: do. I Today, tonight, I'm going to read from um, West of Rome, which is a combination of two short stories, one of which is My Dog Stupid. And I'm going to read... Um, uh, it's part of a chapter uh, about uh, Henry Melise talking about his daughter, Tina. Three weeks later, Rick Culp and Tina went over the hill. It came as no surprise. For days, Culp's bus had been parked in the driveway while they made preparations for the break. Tina bought yardage for flower print curtains and matching seat covers, sewing the material together while Rick pulled the engine and overhauled it. He also wired the bus with twin speakers for the cassette player. The surfboards were wrapped to the top of the cab. Some of the zing and romance went out of the trip when they realized that we made no protests about their going off together. It really was the only way to handle it, for they were determined and there was no way we could have prevented them. For their sleeping together, they had done it for months, so why quit now? We assumed they would one day marry, but that wasn't mentioned either, lest Rick flee parental pressure. The only intrusion upon their privacy was an extra supply of pills, Harriet slipped into Tina's suitcase. We gathered in the driveway for farewell, and Harriet wept. But I had no trouble staying calm and dry-eyed. From the beginning, I was never part of my daughter's world. She had always been ferocious to the point of instability. And there was only one workable strategy, to let her have her own way in all things. Observing her now in white Levi's and a red blouse, her hair in two braids, Mm. her beautiful face, angelically contravening the disposition of a wildcat, I thought how sad it was that we were strangers. She did not dislike me. She loved me, but thought I was a nuisance. "'Take good care of her,' I said, shaking hands with Rick. "'You take good care of your dog.' "'Stupid!' rested on the concrete, staring heavy-lidded and adoringly at Culp. Rick went over to him and poked him gently with the toe of his moccasin, saying, "Goodbye, stupid.' The dog got to his feet, crossed to the rear wheel of the bus, raised his leg, and diddled on the hubcap, his way of exercising the territorial imperative, hmm. I kissed Tina. When'll we see you again? Who knows she sighed some day. Where are you going, north, big sir? Maybe we knew nothing of Rick's finances, but Tina had withdrawn the six hundred she had in a savings account, so there was no concern over the basics of food and lodging, at least not for a while. I figured they'd float around until the money was gone, and then they'd come back to Point Doom. Hmm. Mother and daughter wept at the final embrace. Blinking away tears, Tina said, You be nice to her, Dad. You hear me? I'll do my best. I mean it, she said sternly. They stepped aboard, and I had a last look inside of the curiously stark tube. Despite curtains and color and a new carpet, it had a Mickey Mouse artificiality and lacked warmth and comfort. I gave them two weeks. With waves and thrown kisses, they scooted away toward the highway. My thought was, one down and three to go. (laughs) But it seemed premature. In my heart, though, I hoped they were gone for good, for I wanted Tina's bedroom as my study. It had the best view of the ocean, with two large windows facing south, the finest room in the house. It also had built-in bookcases and an adjoining bathroom with a tub. But I was dreaming. They were back in a week. (laughs) A one-night stopover to do their laundry and wash the bus. Tina raided the kitchen for pots, pans, seasoning, dish towels, a garbage can, a broom and a dustpan, a clock, a steam iron, and an ironing board. Three days later, they were back again, <laughs> this time to wash Tina's hair and use the hair dryer. <laughs> they made off with a carton of cigarettes, a jug of wine, and a gallon of olive oil. <laughs> Thereafter, that was the pattern. They never moved farther south than San Ysidro, and every night there was a collect telephone call to Harriet. Between the telephone and raids on the cupboard, she was more expensive than had she remained at home. <laughs> I told her, too. Fisher cut bait? Are you living here or not? Of course I'm not. I'm just visiting. Fine. I'm moving into your room. Don't you dare. She marched out to the bus with an armload of blankets. Later, I discovered that she had locked the bedroom door with a key, which couldn't be found.
1: (laughs) Victoria Fonte, reading from autobiographical work of her father at the opposite end of his career from Ask the Dust. And now, uh, belatedly, uh, though selfishly I could uh, carry on like this all evening, I'd like to hear some questions from the audience.
0: Hi, David. Hey, Leland. Uh, I've walked David's dog down a dusty road to the beach in Malibu many times, invariably recalling uh, the opening opening parts of uh, My Dog's Soup. And I was wondering, for the Fontes, it, that seemed to be written contemporaneous with his family life, out of point doom. I wonder if you guys remember the events of that book as as real or as uh, actual. I think we
5: both do. They're, they're extra, you know, wild extrapolations, but... Uh, <laughs> Based on reality, uh, to some extent, there's there's the four children, and it's it's unmistakable who each one of one is. I mean, she's Tina. You know well, that.
7: curiously, <laughs> curiously, um, after that book was written, my father and mother called me into the into the patio, I guess out on the patio, and um, asked me or explained to me uh, about the character Tina, and explained to me that. By no, you know, that I should not misunderstand, that I was not Tina and this was a fictitious <laughs> camera. <character. laughs>
2: I'm sure I stomped out of the room. <laughs>
9: and we have another question, midsection on the left.
2: It's actually not a question, I just want to make some statements. My husband was one of the first developers to build a high-rise in downtown Los Angeles oh, called One Wilshire. My name is Marlene Creedman, mm-hmm. and he also <laughs> bought... Talk to me
6: afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Your husband owned the Alexandria.
2: Exactly God what I was going to say uh, now. Come find me. Okay. <laughs> and he bought the Alexandria in the 70s, early 70s, and it was quite successful. He refurbished it, and during the Second War, the ceiling was all blacked out, and when he was refurbishing the hotel... Um, uh, they were scraping off the ceiling and they thought that it was a Tiffany ceiling, whether it was or not, but it looked like a Tiffany ceiling. And, uh, now it's sort of a flophouse.
8: <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll,
1: it'll, it'll get another, uh, a, a, another turn at bat if, if L.A. history teaches us anything. Another question.
10: Hi, thank you so much, that was so great. Um, oh sorry, <laughs> Julia. I was really fascinated by what you were saying. If you had driven through downtown, 38 to 39, how you would have heard those three typewriters kind of cranking out three incredible novels. And there have been really singular, great Angelino books since then. But there's never been that kind of cluster of three books that would be so singular in defining our city. I don't think any year since then. Correct me if I'm wrong.
1: Movies, too, in 1939.
10: So what about that time period was so ripe for kind of something that would become emblematic of the city, and why haven't those conditions kind of come together again?
1: I wish I could say if you go through William Mulholland's diaries, you can find mention of some additive to the water, in, but I, I have no clue. Just you know, may 1939 come back again soon and, and stick around a while. Any other hypotheses on the panel? Um, I can't answer the question, but I
4: think that I've asked that question myself many times, and I think the answer would be to uh, start anyway by reading the newspaper, going to the library and reading every day's uh, edition of the Los Angeles Times and then Los Angeles Examiner, and there may have been other papers too back then, and immerse yourself in the the time itself to see if you could discover what was going on, because it really was remarkable. And uh, it seems to me there's a book in in that. Uh, sim- simply, sure.
3: yeah. there you go. What, next yeah. book.
4: What? What? And that's I, a great question. Um, which? Where, where? Where
6: did? Where did she go? Where did Julia go? She said, Julia, get yourself to Alvera Street. Go stand in front of the Plaza Church where Arturo Bandini got propositioned. <laughs> walk up walk up main street get to 5th street go left walk past the king edward at los angeles keep walking down 5th street to central walk back to the plaza you 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 you've just created a triangle that that during the depression that area everyone all these transient men came to raymond chandler was down there john fonte was down there jim kane was down there mm. The uh, the American Lagos was really in that neighborhood, that triangle. I, I really feel that something very special happened because of the train stations, the transient labor, the the slew of SROs, that, that there was just this
1: it was just it was just bubbling over. Did they know it at the time or is it only apparent in retrospect? No.
6: I, I think Cain Kane, Kane knew that, that fifth in Los Angeles was a special place, I think. I think he well, did. I think
1: my
7: father did too. Well,
6: yeah. oh, he never left. I mean, he, he never had left. Audrey. Audrey, he would visit, I mean, I, I don't, the, the he would go down to Main Street through the, the 60s and 70s. Yeah.
7: He talked, I mean, when he would make reference to Los Angeles, he would always, um, when we would ask him questions, he would make reference to specific sites and, mm. and um, his love for it. So he was obviously drawn to it. Hmm.
10: Another question? Uh, my name is Edward, and um, I. My question is probably not one that anyone on the panel will be able to answer, but I I feel like it's a it's a connection that is worth bringing up. And um, I'm not sure if any of you have read uh, any of the novels of Roberto Bolaño, Mm. but um, his novel, The Savage Detectives, which um, came out a few years ago, I I just recently read. And uh, the protagonist of that novel, which is, it's uh, assumed that the protagonist is, a substitute for Roberto Bolaño. Uh, the protagonist is named Arturo Bolaño. And the whole time I'm reading that, I couldn't help but make the connection with Bandini. And I was wondering if anyone had any insight to maybe uh, Roberto Bolaño's uh, fandom of Fonte, if that was a connection that he consciously made or if maybe that's just coincidence. I don't know. I've uh, been
1: saying either. for years now that if one more person tells me to read Roberto Bolaño, I'm absolutely going to have to, and you're the person. So. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's fantastic. I recommend him to everyone in
10: this room. If you love Fonte, I think you'll also love Roberto Bolaño. Oh. No higher praise.
11: Thanks for the tip.
12: Yeah, we have another question here to your left.
11: Uh, yeah, hi. I'm Charles Bukowski, and I feel left out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, especially with what he wrote, and I always found so what really excited me about Fonte when I picked up the book was to God, this feels weird. I'm used to holding my own microphone. I feel threatened. Sorry. Uh, I'm Josh, by the way. Um, can, can I hold it? I just Jesus. Sorry. Um, I just keep falling backward. Uh, seriously, two points. Um, in the introduction to Ask the Dust, he talks about being in the central library and finding um, a lifeline, if you will, and finding this vitality and the immediacy in the prose. And he contrasts it with all the what what he would call bullshit. So my question to that point is, what did Fonte think of? How do you see his place among his contemporaries? Mm. And the second thing, just for fun, can any of you enlighten us as to what the to where the uh, the uh, the genesis mm-hmm. of the title "Ask the Dust" from where it comes?
1: I bet Stephen's going to run the table on those. Yeah, um,
4: know I know
11: the answer.
1: Oh, <laughs>
4: we both know. Too. This is a test, huh? <laughs> Um, where Fonte would place himself among his contemporaries, uh, he thought he was the best. He did. He, he often uh, he knew it. came out and said he was the best, <laughs> um, and that comes out, I think, in you know certain sections of uh, of *Ask the Dust* and *The Road to Los Angeles*, uh, uh, when Arturo is sort of crowing about how great he is. I think Jim or Vicky may be able to help here. I think he must have known what it felt like, though, too, to feel like not the best. Um, oh, God,
5: yeah. <laughs> uh, Jim
7: has a story about uh, uh, well, we were both in the garage one day when Dad received a rejection um, well, you
5: 1933. Can, he, he'd written um, a novel called 1933 Was a Bad Year, which some of you may have read. Um, he had written it after a long period Uh, where he hadn't written the book. I think the previous book was Full of Life, so it was like a 12-year gap there. And uh, so he wrote the book and uh, sent it off to his uh, Full of Life publisher, and they sent a rejection letter back, said, you've lost it, you know. And uh, he he was devastated.
7: Jim and I were in the garage with him, and he opened the letter, and he was reading it, and he was physically... I mean, visibly crushed.
5: Yeah, I mean, you know, he thought he was a great war writer, but he had doubts. Sure. <laughs> sure. He, he, was, was he was very conflicted, yeah. you know. And if you if you told him he was a great writer, he'd love to hear it, but yeah. uh, he had doubts too.
4: The title "Ask the Dust" comes from Knut Hampson's novel *Pan*. Um, the, it's a passage. The novel is about uh, a young man. And in Norway in the late 19th century who leaves society behind and goes to live on an island with his dog uh, and he's in love but love is unrequited and uh, halfway or so through the novel he remembers a fable from as he puts it four generations ago. Uh, the fable is about a lord who loved a lady and then saw someone else and this someone else, this other woman, he gave himself to like a slave. Uh, and then the prose, the, the, the narrative sort of launches into this I think of as Fonte-esque, but it's actually Hems- Hampson's stuff. Uh, why would anybody love so uh, this way? And the narrator's voice says, ask the dust on the road uh, as if there's no answer to the Steve,
7: question. I thought that was from Hunger, though.
0: That's from Pan. It is from Pan. Yeah.
7: Okay.
1: Yeah. Another couple questions?
0: Yeah, David Birkenrod. Uh, I have terrible with names. The man on the left mentioned the best paragraph, but did you read it? And if you didn't, please do. And Francis, you talked about discrepancy, but I thought he was just writing about himself as a younger man, which is done all the time, I think.
3: Oh, I don't think I talked about a discrepancy. No, more just... No, no, I. The,
0: the man Francis said so. Francis used the word discrepancy.
3: Francis.
0: No, no, I'm Francis. Mm. This is. I'm sorry. <laughs> the man. <laughs> Steve. Okay. Steve. Steve. I'm sorry. Yeah.
4: The discrepancy between. I'm sorry.
0: You said there was a discrepancy between the fact that at the time that he wrote, he was a married man and he was writing about, I assume, Arturo Bandini, but right. wasn't he just writing about a younger self?
4: Well, yeah, but fiction has about it a way of altering and, and changing, you know, the way things actually were. so
0: Sure. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. I don't think it's discrepancy, that's all. Okay.
4: Oh. Fair <laughs> enough
12: All right, uh, folks we got a question here to your right. First of all, this is
13: a really great event. Thank you for doing this. This is wonderful.
12: Thanks for coming.. Thank you.
13: And um... I have every, you know, book that John wrote. I, in fact, it's, this is so great because I just finished reading everything <laughs> within the last year. <laughs> so, uh, but I have not read the biography and I'm going to now because yeah. Dan says I have to. And, uh, this, an- this question is probably answered in the biography. But, um, I want to frame it with the irony that here we are, you know, within a few days of this, you know, centennial of, of John's birth and this, incredible earthquake hits his very, mm-hmm. the, the the country and the Not region. Just Italy, but Abruzzi. Exactly, the epicenter is yeah, Abruzzi, so.
7: Fifty miles from Torricelli, Poligna.
13: And I, I hope that uh, your uh, relations, which I'm sure you have there, are okay. Mm-hmm. But I want to ask you, um, and I forget which book this is, help me with this. But he uh, does this amazing description of the Long Beach earthquake. What's "Ask the the Dust"? dust. Is is it an "Ask the Dust"? Okay, great. Because I I love that passage. Was he in the Long Beach earthquake? Oh yes. Yes, he was. Yeah.
4: yeah. Curiously, the Long Long Beach earthquake was a six point three. The earthquake in uh, Italy day before yesterday or so was six point three. But he was there. Accounts differ um, as to what he did. Uh, The The novel makes himself, Arturo, out to be terrified, uh, so terrified that he makes up these giant lies about uh, how heroic he was at the time. Um, There are two published, uh, very short articles about Fonte during the earthquake. One has him plunging two stories, uh, and landing unconscious and <laughs> losing, I think, the manuscript of the book he was supposed to be writing at the time in the fire. The other article has him plunging 60 feet through uh, through the debris and emerging unscathed. Uh, both of these, I have to think, were sort of products of his own self-promotion. Um, I had a, go
6: ahead. Also, uh, if you go to Pershing Square... There's a fissure that runs out of the sometimes empty fountain mm-hmm. at the southwest corner of the park, and it's an om- it's an homage to Chapter 13 in *Ask the Dust*, which is the Long I Beach I spoke to the architect earthquake.
7: who who designed it, yeah, and she said absolutely that came from *Ask the Dust*, ah. and it represents the earthquake in Long Beach. And
6: and of course after the earthquake in. In chapter 13, he goes and sleeps in Pershing Square because he's afraid to go back. Everyone's afraid to go back into the houses.
2: Thank
14: you. Hi, my name's Brian. I just had a a, a real quick question. Well, I'll just say that um, I, too, read Ask the Dust on my way to Los Angeles. I was driving Mm -hmm. in an old 1970 Plymouth Valiant that was breaking down along the 5 from Seattle. And then... Uh, I was reading *Full of Life* when my wife was pregnant with my first, well, my only set of twins, mm. and uh, at the same time that we were remodeling our house. That <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't fall through the floor. But um, my question is very, very um, uh, a simple question. I, 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 I was working with uh, with uh, w- with with an actor who was saying that he had had these meetings with with your father um and we were talking uh, about that and I was enamored of the, 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 that 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 he uh, that he had met him and he and we had this argument with each other cuz he said that your your dad said that uh, he wanted to be known as John Fant <laughs>
5: <laughs> well you know um, the they anglicized fonte G- you know growing up in Colorado, and there was the Ku Klux Klan and all that stuff i mean seriously they they decided to call themselves the fanties <laughs> and uh to this day, his brother Tom who's still alive, he's Tom Fanty he won't say fante so mm. uh uh dad and we
7: correct each other all the
5: time my <laughs> My father was john fanty um that's that's who he said he was mm.
9: We have
12: a question at the very top here to your right.
9: Um, my name is Jesus. Um, it's not quite a question, but on, uh, I was picking up on uh, another comment that was made about, I mean from Julia I think, about why is there a splurge of um, such great books. I'm not going to presume that I'm an expert on this but I did, uh, I studied uh, quite a bit history of Los Angeles and during the, during the 1930s uh, up to the 40s, there was a splurge of what is a California, well. What would define who is angelino and during this period um latinos um not quite but um the uh, the anglo communities higher um class were using um the idea of what is a california for mexicans um to develop over street um the community of los angeles and they really um use the culture in order to develop. So I'm not sure if um, Fonte and his friends and other authors have, uh, were connecting with um, Ovelle Street and that triangle that you described um, through Fish Street and all the way back. But um, that was a center of culture and what is, what determined who was a Californian and who was not a Californian. And if you did not fit in that triangle, um, you, were, um, you were not a true Californian.
1: Well, if that's the secret, by all means, let's all go out and ask each other what it means to be an Angelino right now. If we're going to get three books like that out of it, Mm -hmm. it's well worth it. Thank you. Another question. Yes, my name is David, and I have a question that may just be a compliment. In the early 80s, I was interviewing a lot of crime writers in Southern California, and one of them, W.R. Burnett, was very respectful of uh, John Fonte. And I was curious if uh, anyone on the panel knows if they had a uh, acquaintanceship or a friendship, and to generalize that, how much uh, John Fante considered himself a film writer, and if he related to that occupational description.
4: (laughs) Burnett was a member of the stable of contract screenwriters at Warner Brothers, at uh, one time anyway, when John Fante was too. I don't recall any uh, uh, any evidence of a close friendship or even a you know collaboration, but you know they worked at the same studio at the same time at any rate. And was there a second part? I forget. Yeah,
7: what was it?
5: Did he consider himself a, uh, screenwriter. a screenwriter? Screenwriter.
4: Oh, by all means, uh, he was uh, altogether professional, which is not to say he liked it. I think it's fair to say that he often hated the, the work of writing for the movies um, about as much as he loved writing.
7: He would never go to a premiere. Really? <laughs> he would never go to a finished movie.
4: He, he talked about the, the, uh, the, the machine in his head, the camera machinery in his head that he had to sort of put up with when writing screenplays, which is to say, I think, uh um that it wasn't a comfortable, you know, fit for him.
5: He had his own idea. You know, I remember going to f- films with him, unfortunately for us, um <laughs> a few times. And um if he didn't like a movie, I mean it didn't <laughs> matter. He was just going to get up and leave. And I don't think I ever saw a, a film in a theater all the way through with him. <laughs> <laughs>
7: He was terrible. <laughs> He'd do the same thing if he went to a restaurant and the service was bad. <laughs> He'd say, we're out of here.
1: And yet there's no record of anybody ever reading half of Ask does. Dust.
14: <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is Jeff, and uh, uh, you know, you, wherever Fante was, he really brought the, the city to life. And I pretty well know Los Angeles, but then you read, wait until spring bandini. And uh, now I want to go explore Colorado. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so, but my, my question is for uh, Vicki and Jim. Uh, he, uh, he was a, did he ever lose a fight? He was a very good fighter, wasn't he, with his cuffs? You I've, know, he, I, you I mean, and he was, show, uh, he was, he was well, five feet two, five but five he foot was two.
7: Five foot three. Okay.
5: Okay. <laughs> he was barrel chested and, and you wouldn't want to mess with him. Trust me. He's, he used to um, fight prize fights for his father <laughs> in Colorado. Um, he was the quarterback of his high school football team. Um,
7: also a great baseball player.
5: Yeah, yeah. He he's was, quite an uh, athlete. Yeah, he's a tough guy, no doubt about it. I mean, you you never thought of him as five feet two, never, yeah. never.
14: Pictures. It's like you think he's yeah. that tall.
5: He was
7: to us.
9: (laughs) (laughs) And we have another question to your left on the midsection
12: over here. Hi, I'm Catherine. And uh, I've been trying to feel the words for what I'm trying to ask or say, but I think it goes back to the idea of your father having felt conflicted about who he was to others. You know, at one point he felt great and other times obviously was hurt. And I think that that concept of conflict and discrepancy which we've been addressing in different areas here feels to me also what's so beautiful about his work because he doesn't need to have it be a singular note I mean it's so much about being real that of course there's discrepancy and conflict and what I wanted to ask more about is how you feel that addressed that was addressed in his work in terms of spirituality because to me I always felt the greatest wonder in his work is the innocence of faith and how that helps his characters, while he's also railing against the, you know, the bullshit of, you know, early c- Catholic oppression and so on. So um, I kind of wanted to ask how you feel the conflict with innocence and in faith versus what he was born into comes through in his work.
4: In *Ask the Dust*, Arturo r- runs the gamut from uh, shaking his fist at God and uh, um, complaining that although he Arturo is an atheist, um, how dare God uh, mess around with him? <laughs> two, he, he asks God, have you read Nietzsche? <laughs> uh, two, the just this swooningly, breathtakingly beautiful passage just before the uh, earthquake. Um, he's just lost his virginity to Vera Rivkin at the apartment in Long Beach, and he's outside on the boardwalk of the pike. Um, and for a, a page and a half, he is, he's thinking about the sea of faith that he's lost touch with, uh, but that he feels certain he'll find his way back to. And I don't even want to dare summarize it because it can't be done. It's 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 the next best thing to pure poetry. Um, so he was aware of and uh, you know embraced the those contradictions. Uh, I, I'm always of a mind to think of Fonte as not an either or kind of a guy, but a both and kind of a guy. He could negotiate paradox.
7: Uh, and I have a cute story to tell that Richard wants me to. Uh, talk about, it's. this is true, um, I must have been in the third grade, and we had, I was at Catholic school, and um, do you remember this, Jim, we had to write stories about where our family was from, and um, many of the children were related to, I remember one child was related to Mary, Queen of Scots, and, and um, <laughs> somebody was, I mean, they were all related to all these famous people, <laughs> And I came home. i will wind
11: up in Malibu
1: eventually. Don't
7: and, and and I came home and I said to my parents, well, I need to write about somebody. You know, who were we related to? And and Dad said... Uncle
5: Mingo and the Bandits? And
7: Dad said, Uncle Mingo and the Bandits. <laughs> and I said, well, who's that? He said he was a horse thief. <laughs> and I said, so I can't write
12: that. He said, yes, you can. <laughs> do
7: you remember that?
12: Yeah, I... Do. <laughs> I I have a question to your right. This will be our final question of the night. Um, We do invite you to join us at the reception, taking place out in the courtyard, where you can chat further with tonight's panelists on tonight's discussion. Thank you.
8: Okay, I have a two-part question. My name is Josh. Um, uh, I guess I live in Long Beach. Uh, You teach in Long Beach, Dr. Cooper. Um, And uh, I've just been reading and trying to find little snippets and traces of Long Beach in the fiction of John Fonte. Mm -hmm. Um, and Wrath of God, the story from Dago Red, um, was a story that he was very, uh, that was going to be cut by, by the editor, um, that, that picked up that book. And, um, Fonte was adamant of it, it staying in. He even, I think, changed the name of the, the female, um, counterpart in that story to match the, the same name as the Helen, I think, in, um, in, uh...
5: Hell on thy beauty oh. is to me.
8: No, no, the that's a later story. This is, uh, no, his most famous story, Home Sweet Home. Um, but, uh, I guess, I guess I, I just wanted to see if if, if you, Stephen, um, could speak to the, that sort of, like, seed, that wrath of God, w- that was planted in wrath of God that sprouted into the sort of Vera Rifkin Long Beach earthquake thing in, um, Acidus. As well as, um, this is totally unconnected, but okay. it's more connected to his, um, sort of pugilistic comment about Fonte. Um, there's that famous, uh, anecdote of Fonte writing the note to Sinclair Lewis, I think it's at the Musso Franks or something. Chainson's. Mm-hmm. And, Jason's. Yeah, yeah, and he just completely insults him. Okay. And then when, when Sinclair Lewis stands up, he goes after Fonte. And by that time, Fonte's ran out the door and he's hiding in the in the uh, in the car, mm-hmm. and he's basically calls Fonte out. And I was just wondering, I've read about that. I think in your biography, as well as in another um, in another source.
4: So. Boy, those are two big <laughs> and different questions. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I that that <laughs> yeah, I, I I believe that happened. Uh, he he saw Sinclair Lewis at Jason's. At least he claimed yeah, that that yeah. was based on uh, in fact and uh, presumed to think that Sinclair Lewis, famous Sinclair Lewis, Nobel laureate Sinclair Lewis, would be happy to to shake the hand of a, an adoring fan. And uh, Sinclair Lewis was much more interested in being with, I think, the two women he was with. Um, and uh, Fonte took it you know, the wrong way and really insulted him. Uh, Nothing new about that. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a better note to end on than the
1: (laughs) the wrath of God. Before we close, it's one thing to notice that Fonte's hundredth birthday is coming up, and we ought to do something about it.
7: But sorry, tomorrow.
1: Tomorrow. Um, but to actually go through with it and see all these wonderful people in the audience I feel so grateful to spend such an enchanted evening with you and if you'll just join me in in one last round of applause before we go out and raise a glass to John Fonte for our panel